So we are on lesson number eight, entitled The Servant of God, and it's John chapter 12 and verse 12 through chapter 13. We pray, we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit that we may understand the things that you have given to us in your word here, and we want to give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're on at John chapter 12, and we will start into the Upper Room Discourse, which starts in chapter 13, which gives us new data regarding the church. It's really the earliest information regarding the church. Um, but we're going to look at Palm Sunday, the first Palm Sunday, as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Verses 12 through 19. Can somebody read verses 12 through 19? Chapter 12. Palm Sunday, right? There, uh, there are two fulfilled prophecies in this one little passage. One is quoted in... Um, actually, there are three prophecies here. Verse 13 quotes, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This is from Psalm 118, verse 26, which is a messianic psalm. Verse 15 says, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And that is, where's that from? Anybody know? Yeah, Zechariah 9.9. We studied that in the summer. Oh, it is the summer. We studied it. No, this is the fall. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, yeah, so that is a prophecy fulfilled, Zechariah from 520 B.C. The psalm, I'm not sure exactly how old that was. It didn't have an author. Psalm 18 doesn't have an author to it. <clears throat> so I'm not sure how long before that prophecy was uttered first. And the other prophecy is... Uh, the 70-week prophecy, this is the terminus of the 69th week, to the day, okay? So Daniel's prophecy, 70-week prophecy, which he um, prophesied in 539 B.C., so... Uh, and around 560, 570 years before this happened. And it says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and through the records we know that that decree was issued by Artaxerxes of Persia. I don't remember the exact date, but they have the exact date in 444 B.C. Okay. And so from that time until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven plus 62 is 
69. 69 weeks of years. So, it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Now, that is the book of Nehemiah. Okay. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. So, the that's a prophecy of the crucifixion. Okay. But it's been figured out in this um, this guy Harold Honer, who is a he's now passed away, but he was a professor at Dallas Seminary, and he wrote a book called the Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, and he was writing this, and he happened to calculate the days between the decree and between this Palm Sunday. And he didn't have it planned ahead of time, or you know, or what the day. Actually, what he did was he calculated what 69 weeks would be with a Jewish year of 360 days, and it came down to 170 thousand something. But when he took that number of days and started at the decree, it ended on this day, the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey fulfilled by the Zechariah's prophecy. So that just goes to show you that how accurate God is and how good he is at math. And uh, that when he says something, you can take it to the bank. So Israel has a lot of these timing issues, you know. And uh, what's interesting is that the church does not. The church has no timing. There is no dates for the church. There is no times for the church. The church was a mystery in the Old Testament. That is why we cannot say, we could be raptured this minute. We could be raptured today, this afternoon, while we're having lunch. Yeah. So the, there is, you know, there are people that say, oh, it's going to happen on Rosh Hashanah. It's going to happen on this day or that day or the other day. There's no time stamp. On the church at all. It will happen when the fullness of the Gentiles come in. That's what it says in Romans uh, 11.25. We can see the season, right? Because we see the shadow of the tribulation coming on us. We see it. We see the world being prepared for the tribulation period, and we can see it now. So that's how we know it's close. But we, you know, anyway, I just wanted to talk about that quickly. Exactly. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's all these theories from Christians, from, in general, good Christians, you know. Um, even, who's the guy that wrote, wrote the late great planet Earth? Hal Lindsey. Yeah. He said because Israel started here, you know, the rapture is going to come here. Well, you can't say that because Israel is on a time clock. The church is not. There's no time clock for the church. <clears throat> so um, look at verse 16. These things, so there's three prophecies fulfilled on this day. 
And the, the disciples, these things says the disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So they, in hindsight, they were able to recognize prophecy was fulfilled in that day. Several prophecies. <clears throat> so have you ever looked back later on something and realized that it was the Lord at work? You didn't realize it at the time. Have you ever looked in the past and thought, that was the Lord working? You know, a lot of times when I was in medical school and things like that, people were inviting me to church, doing this, you know, I was pushing them away <laughs> and stuff like that, you know. That was the Lord working. The Lord's always working. But it's interesting that his disciples didn't understand until later, probably after they received the Holy Spirit, which illuminates. It illuminates us and helps us to understand God's word. And then look at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. So Jesus comes into town riding on a donkey, which is pretty humble for a king, right? The king came with salvation. That's what Zechariah says. His first coming was all about salvation. His second coming will be as you would think a king would be. On a gallant steed, you know, raging war. That's how he'll come the second time. So the Pharisees are not spiritual men, are they? They don't appear to be because Jesus comes, his message is consistent with prior revelation. He is a very prolific miracle worker. He fulfills prophecy right and left. And they still want to get rid of him. Yeah, they're trying to uh, have God accept them by their works. He won't. <laughs> he will never accept a person based on human works, right? Never. So verse, or, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, But a natural man, this is someone who has not trusted in what God has done for him. Natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. That's what the Pharisees were thinking. This is foolish. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. That's one of the things the Holy Spirit does in us when we are saved, is help us to understand spiritual things and makes us willing to obey God's word you know, as, it, as it's applied to us. Okay, so Jesus enters Jerusalem, and there's, again, a division, a very polarizing person, Jesus. Well, let me remind those who are listening, uh, read along these sections so you get the most out of it. Chapter 12, verses 20 through 36. That's how we should be. Just tell it like it is. You know, you can be gentle, but still tell it like it is. You should be gentle, you know. Tell the truth in love, right? Tell the truth in love. God the Father spoke at his baptism, at his transfiguration, and here. So he authenticates, you know, this is the one. This is the, this is the real one. 
So in verse 20, remember, Jesus came as the king of the Jews. And when he came initially, Matthew 3, verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if the Jews had accepted him as king and enthroned him, the kingdom of God would have begun. Of course, that was not God's plan. Uh, and that was prophesied because of Isaiah 53, that the Messiah would be rejected. <clears throat> and he was rejected. But um, in verse 20, now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. See, the Messiah was never just for Israel. He was never just for Israel, although he came through Israel, and he is Israel's king. He is for the entire world. And here, now non-Jews are beginning to seek him. So these are Greeks going up to worship at the feast, so they're proselytes. They were non-Jews who had converted <clears throat> to Judaism, and they wanted to see Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And so then verse 23, that was Jesus' cue. Remember, all the, all the way through, he says, my time has not yet come. He said that to his mother, and his mother wanted him to do something about the wine. He said, woman, you know, what does that have to do with me? My time has not yet come. All the way through, when he's talking to his brothers, he says, my time has not yet come. Here he says, the hour has come. This is the time. So Jesus is very tuned into timing. And he's like, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The gate, when he said, I am the gate, and I am the shepherd of the sheep. In John 10, verse 16, he's saying, I have other sheep. He's talking to the Jews here. I have other sheep, who are not you, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So he's talking about the church, which is predominantly Gentile, which was to come, which he would form after his ascension. <clears throat> uh, the other sheep. That's us. He was thinking about us when he said that to the Jews. And I appreciate that. Then verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, so this, pay attention to this one. When God says, Amen, Amen, this is serious stuff. <laughs> pay attention to this one. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Okay, he's talking about himself. Notice what has to happen. He has to die. And then he applies it to us. Immediately. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me in this way. That's, that is how you follow him. So, <clears throat> where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So, is Jesus here talking about justification? or sanctification, the first tense of salvation or the second tense of salvation? 
What makes you justified? Mm -hmm. You believe. That's all. That's justification. <clears throat> He's not talking about that here, is he? He is talking about giving up your life. That is sanctification. Okay, and that is how we become useful to God in the world. By giving up our life. How do you practically do that? Right, you put others first. Exactly. You put your desires in abeyance <laughs> for a while. And say, you know, because Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So he wants to duplicate himself in this. So this phrase, he says, where I am there, my servant will be also. Now he says this later in the first, this is the very first teaching on the rapture. We'll get to this in a future lesson, but John 14 and verse 3. It says, if I go and prepare a place for you in the Father's house, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So once the rapture occurs, Jesus and us, the church, will never be separated again. Because we're his bride. After the rapture, we will be married to him. We will be his wife. A husband and wife live together, right? So we will be with, <clears throat> and that's what he's saying here. Where I am, there my servant will be also. So that will be very pleasant to be around Jesus. And also, Paul, in probably the most extensive rapture passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, gives us the same concept. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, he says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. That's my prayer, that I'm in this group. I'm alive when I'm raptured. I want to be in that group. I know it's selfish, <laughs> because 2,000 years of believers have been trained for this. Somebody is, is going to be the one, you know, so I pray for that. But anyway, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord thereafter. So, <clears throat> so when we see the Lord, we will not be separated from him again. So this also is justification for the idea when you look in Revelation 19, uh, Revelation 19, I think it's 11 through 15, talks about the second coming. Not the rapture, but the second advent of Christ. And it says in verse 14, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. You know these three verses like this? Give uh, support to the fact that the church will return with him. Along with angels. Because... It says that the angels will return with him as well. So <clears throat> I think that's, uh, uh, we will be following after him in his second advent. So verse 27 then, this tells you the purpose of the incarnation. 
of God. Now my soul has begun troubled, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. The only reason the second person of the Trinity became enfleshed was to be our sacrifice. That is the whole reason for the incarnation. Remember when God told Abraham, after Abraham had waited until he was 100 years old to have a baby, you know, him and Sarah, and they finally did, even after they messed up and through Hagar got Ishmael, you know, that was them trying to help God. <clears throat> but finally God gave him what he had promised, and then God told him to sacrifice him on an altar. It was a test, a test of faith, right? And uh, so Isaac, he's walking along, you know, and he says, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? He was old enough to know that, you know, they, they, would, they sacrificed lambs to God. And he says, I don't see a lamb. And Abraham, not wanting to scare him, said God will provide for himself the lamb. So we know that the story, in this story, Abraham was ready to stab him, and God called from heaven and said, don't. And he provided a ram caught in a thicket at that time. But this is the foreshadowing of the real lamb. Verse 31, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Um, Jesus said this 2,000 years ago. So did was Satan cast out immediately? Satan is still wandering around. He still bothers us. Yeah, that is why we're called upon, to, even today, to put on the full armor of God. So we have defense against Satan. So what did happen? What happened here? It's in Colossians. Yeah, Paul pointed out that in the in the text it says the ruler of this world will be cast out future tense. In verses 14 and 15 it says of Jesus, he canceled out the certitude of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So, remember, John's gospel talks about testimony and things like that, like in a courtroom. And he's trying to prove the case that Jesus is the Messiah. And what happened at, with Satan was a legal sort of thing, too. At the cross, Satan was convicted as in a court of law. He was convicted. So Satan is a convicted felon right now. Sentence has yet to be carried out. Sentence will be carried out in two phases. Well, three phases, actually. Three phases. The midpoint of the tribulation, there will be a war in heaven. Right? Michael and his angels will fight against Satan and his angels. Satan will be cast out from heaven 
kept from any access. Right now he has access to heaven. He doesn't worship the Lord in heaven, but he goes up there to accuse us. Look at what Paul did. He's such a godly man. Look at what he did. That's what Satan does all the time. He goes up to accuse the saints. And uh, so he will be defeated and cast down. And that's why it says he comes down with great wrath because he knows his time is short. And he will be crazy. And then, after Jesus comes back, it tells us that Satan is bound with a great chain in the abyss. And his angels with him, and that's implied because it does not say that in the text, that the demons are, but the demons go with their boss. So that in the millennial kingdom, there will be no satanic temptation. The only thing fighting against people in the millennium will be their own flesh, their own sin nature. And then finally, he'll be cast into the lake of fire at the end of the millennium. So Satan is still the ruler of this world, the god of this world, but he's convicted. And um, judgment just has to be uh, carried out. He's God's tool to test men and women to see whether or not they will trust God. That's why Satan becomes human. Okay, and then verse 35, so Jesus said, For a little while longer the light is among you. Remember Jesus said of himself, I am the light of the world. For a little while I'm among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. If you walk in darkness, you don't know where you're going. And then verse 36, he tells them how to get saved. Believe in the light. I am the light. Believe in the light. Believe in Jesus, and you will be saved, so that you may become sons of light. When you are, when you believe in Jesus, get the Holy Spirit, you can become a son of light. Although you, you can choose not to. We have choices all the way through. <laughs> no choices all the way through. The one choice of believing on Christ is the most important choice because that determines your destiny in eternity. But all the others, you know, we have a hundred, we have, you know, 50 choices a day about, am I going to do this? Am I going to do that? Am I going to choose this? You know, am I going to cheat on that? Am I going to do that? You know. And that determines our reward or lack of it. Okay, what about 37 through 50? I'll read that one. So the Greeks were starting to seek him. So they said, okay, the hour has come. So verse 37, chapter 12, verse 37, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. <clears throat> for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light, 
into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. You know, evangelism is so frustrating <laughs> because of stuff like this. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. He had just zillions of signs. He's just a, you know, a miracle juggernaut, and he all over the place. He was aligned totally. His teaching was totally aligned with the Hebrew Bible. So if you're a Berean in those days, and you're saying you're listening to him, say, hmm, and you look at the Hebrew Bible, it checks, check, check. And they didn't believe. And then it says that this is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And it's a judicial hardening by God. Verse 40, he, he, God, has blinded their eyes. And he hardened their heart. So they would not see with their eyes and perceive their heart and be converted. And that was back 700 years before Jesus came. This prophecy of Isaiah was uttered. And you know, this prophecy can, uh, is still in effect today. There's a remnant of Jews who believe, but they're very small. The majority of the Jewish people do not believe in their own Messiah. And why is that? This is a big part of it. There is a hardening. That is not to say that the Jews should not be evangelized. The Jews should be evangelized because the gospel is to the Jew first, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. We're the Greek. Romans 11.25 says, For I do not want you, brethren, and he's writing to, to Gentile believers in Rome, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so it hadn't been revealed before, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then the Lord will begin working directly with... Right now, the Lord is working through the church, the kingdom prophesied to Israel has been postponed. Israel has been preserved and protected for 2,000 years. While the Lord is working with the church, but at the rapture, the Lord will begin directly working with Israel. And the way he will work with them is to shatter their pride. He will shatter. They're, they're a very proud people because they're chosen by God. And that is true. Um, but the purpose of the tribulation is to shatter the pride of Israel. So then, you know, and when he, when he does, and they finally give in, and, you know, it will take the death of two-thirds of them to do it. Two-thirds of the Jews will die. And uh, the remnant will call him back. So then verse 42, this is interesting too. Nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him. Remember, Nicodemus believed in him. Joseph of Arimathea, who was also part of the Sanhedrin, believed in him. Many of the rulers believed in him, but look what it says. They weren't confessing him because they were afraid of their colleagues. So this is what we were talking about earlier. They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Um, so these people were justified. They're going to heaven. Many of the rulers believed in him, they're going to, but they were not yet disciples. They were not yet on the road of progressive sanctification because they refused to let anyone know that they were. 
That is where the rewards come, and that is where the persecution comes. Both come with following him. That's the end of that chapter. So the quarterly doesn't go into chapter 13, which is the beginning of the Upper Room Discourse, which has a lot of good stuff. So I'm going to keep going until we run out of time. So it's the Lord's Supper. It's talking about the Lord's Supper. Jesus, remember, he came in and he laid aside his garments and he wrapped a towel around himself and he started washing feet. So he came up to Peter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So Peter changes his mind. He says, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. So he says, you are clean, that means you are justified. You believe in me, but not all of you do. That was Judas. But he also says, if you do not wash, you have no part with me. So that means in the life of the Christian, when we sin, fellowship is broken. The intimacy is broken with God, just like in a marriage. You sin against your wife, your wife sins against her husband, fellowship is broken, you're still married. But the intimacy is gone until there is confession and forgiveness. And that happens with 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so then fellowship is restored because Jesus is very forgiving. He says, if you confess, he will forgive you. That's what he was talking about there. Then verses 12 through 15. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. He said, if you want to be a leader, you're to be a slave. Not just a servant, the slave of all. If you want to be greatest, you should be the slave of all. You know, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. To follow Jesus, you should be willing to do even menial tasks like washing feet, like sweeping the floor, like washing the rug, like cleaning the toilet. Anything. Menial. You know, you're not high and mighty if you're leading in the Lord's kingdom. You're a servant. Because he was a servant. Then uh, verse 25, okay, they're talking about who's going to betray him. So he, leaning back on Jesus' bosom, this is the Apostle John, said to him, Lord, who is it? So we see that Jesus treated Judas with the same grace he treated everyone else. Even though he knew he was a traitor. He, he couldn't tell. No one could tell that Jesus knew. And that's how we're to treat people, with grace. Like Jesus does, no matter how they are. Then verse 27, this is the has to be one of the most frightening verses in the Bible. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him, Judas. So Judas was possessed by Satan himself. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. There's one other person that I believe is possessed by Satan, and the reason I believe it's not, it's not directly said like it is here, but Judas is called the son of perdition. Or the son of destruction. There's only one other person called that in the Bible, and that is 
2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 3, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, or son of perdition. That is the Antichrist. And for that reason, I believe that when Satan is defeated in heaven and he is cast onto the earth, he will enter the Antichrist. Into this That's why I think that. Verse 30. So after receiving the morsel from Jesus, he, Judas, went out immediately, and it was night. It's interesting that he makes that comment, and it was night. Night is the time for evil, right? You do bad things under cover of darkness. Then uh, verse 34, a new, this is interesting, Jesus saying, a new commandment I give to you. So he says, this is a new commandment, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. How is that a new commandment? Love each other as I have loved you. That's the new part. The old part was Leviticus 19:18. Shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the old commandment to love, love as you would love yourself. Jesus says, love as I loved you. Much higher standard than the Mosaic law. Then verse 35 by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This type of love that Jesus told them to do, love as he loved us. And then people will know that you're his disciples. It'll be a sign to the unbelieving world. And then lastly, verse 38, Jesus answered to Peter, will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Jesus said, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. That is a short-term prophecy. He predicted it. It was fulfilled that night. Jesus has a whole bunch of those short-term prophecies. You know, he's a prophet. He can reveal the future. Now, Peter felt bad when that <laughs> prophecy came true. Yeah, he cried. So, amen.